0: Can we survive the next pandemic? How does the COVID-19 pandemic parallel the HIV pandemic? What lessons can we learn from the current global pandemic response? I'm Ban Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we try to answer the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is David France. He is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning investigative journalist. David's directorial debut, How to Survive a Plague, received Academy and Emmy nominations and a Peabody Award. His 2017 film, it's called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, was awarded the OutFest Freedom Award. David premiered his third documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival There, it won the Special Jewelry Award for Documentary Editing. It received numerous awards, including BAFTA and Peabody. David's latest film is called How to Survive a Pandemic. It is streaming right now on HBO Max, and it premiered at the 2022 Thessaloniki Documentary Festival. It is a great documentary. I can't recommend it highly enough, and I was so honored that David took some time out of his extremely busy schedule to join me for today's podcast as you know this podcast is a labor of love occasionally we get sponsors but normally we don't my producer Rob Glees and I love putting out this podcast every week for you and we do ask that you support us and the way that you can do that is to go to Apple Podcasts give us five stars leave us a review there you have to navigate on the Apple Podcast platform, but there is a way that you can actually leave an actual review, sign up for our newsletter, go to the podcast show notes, there you find a link for it, and tell someone about the podcast or share about it on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram. Now here's my conversation with David France. David France, welcome to Design Lab. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bob. This is your fourth film. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic. Can you tell us about the film for our audience who haven't seen it to give us a little bit of a synopsis and we'll take a deeper dive into it, but everyone should watch this film. It's streaming on HBO.
1: The uh, The film is about all the work that was being done around vaccine development in the height of the pandemic in the first year, which was really the unseen work of the pandemic. So many people who were on the front lines were doing work that we did see. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we were brought to the hospitals, sometimes because we were, at least here in New York, standing on our fire escapes at seven o'clock and giving applause and thanks to frontline workers. But in this totally invisible, unseen space, there was an incredible scramble to try and use the decades of advancing knowledge about vaccinology and immunology mm-hmm. to come up with a response to this that would get us free from lockdown. So I reached out to the people who were doing it, you know, almost a trillion dollars flew into the hands of researchers and developers and big pharma and the tech industries to to fund this. And I said, like, this is, you know, this, first of all, it's all public money. It's the public is very interested in your successes because it's mm. going to mean the difference for us let us in to watch it so that was the original kind of concept for the piece and then so many people did almost everybody invited us in to watch wow yeah. and
0: that's what we chronicle when was the inspiration for this this was rollback Were 2020 was it like february of 2020 january march and you're in New York City at this time? It was in
1: March. You know, I had a previous film that we had rolled out starting in January and we were traveling the world, introducing it to audiences. And then we were sent home. You know, in New York City, we were we were sent to lockdown on March 13th. And that's when I began my fixation on the science. You know, I knew that science was going to be our only hope for finding an answer, that this was a scientific challenge and that so many of the people who I knew because I'm a long time HIV AIDS reporter, Mm. were remobilized around this pandemic. And I knew that they must be feeling the weight of that responsibility, really the health and future of all of humanity. And so then instead of just fixating on it, which I was doing and texting my friends, I said, maybe we should record this for history because it could go really, really right or it could go really, really wrong
0: either way. Future generations should know about it. Yeah. So you must have been in March of 2020. I was not optimistic about vaccines. I remember thinking, well, it, it might be like two or three years before we get one. So I'm just going to, you know, put on my PPE and continue taking care of patients in, in the emergency room. It's like it's going to be years before we get a vaccine. No way in hell did I think it would become, come out within a year. Wait, right. oh, no,
1: 11 months, right? Uh, yeah. 11 months to the results of the phase threes and that was unprecedented and unprojected as you're pointing out like people really did believe that if we broke all records for vaccine development it would be two to three years yeah and we'd never had done it but you know in less than seven years before yeah so i was i thought i would be in my apartment filming remotely for all that time and and yet the answer came
0: you thought it was like hey here's a seven-year commitment i'm
1: going to follow this around absolutely i mean i felt like we'd all be stuck at home until this happened anyway so i might as well uh you know stick with it and see what we can determine and you know that the people who did that work the laboratory work and all the intellectual work behind the vaccines had spent decades looking for an anti-hiv vaccine mm. decades and incredible sums of money and yet we still don't have an HIV vaccine. So mm. that shows you how tough vaccines are. And yeah. they, the researchers did have some experience with coronavirus and they had some platforms that they had been developing that they felt had potential against coronaviruses, but they had never tested it in a phase three clinical trial. Yeah. So they had some belief in what they were doing based on phase one and phase twos that they had done. For MERS and and other you know previous but short-lived coronavirus threats, and so this was their opportunity to take it out further. You know we all wanted them to succeed, but I especially thought it was uh, would be fascinating to watch this you know group of scientists who had spent you know so many decades in, in what looked like a futile to have them come and with a new challenge and see how, how they do and. To watch them stand up and watch, watch them after all those years score such enormous successes was was really rewarding.
0: And the documentary is in two parts, part one and part two. Can you explain part one and part two of the documentary?
1: Absolutely. You know, in my fixation on the science, people from the public health community kept reminding me that a vaccine that scores well in a phase three clinical trial is not a vaccination campaign, and it was not going to be our solution unless it were at the same time matched with this incredible logistical challenge of getting the vaccine out to the rest of the world. Mm. So once that that eleven-month, you know, incredible breakthrough happened, and it really was incredible to to prove to be efficacious at such a high level, then the challenge was a scramble, you know, get it mm. out to the rest of the world. And I had been filming with the public health agencies and authorities at the same time. And they were trying to stand up this real kind of almost mathematical strategy, which was that we, we needed to get the vaccines out initially within the first year to 20% of the population in every country. And that would include the elderly Mm -hmm. frontline workers. That was very essential because that would keep hospitals from collapsing. And the people who had like other underlying illnesses. And there's about 7% of any population falls into each of those three categories. So if we got the front line vaccinated in the first year, we would bring down the caseload dramatically, bring down the viral load dramatically, and then spend the second year vaccinating everybody else. So that was the challenge. And I thought, okay, we watched this huge success in the science. Let's watch whether or not we'll have that success in the rollout
0: yeah i read in an interview in preparing for this you state as we were filming our concern was mounting that we were going off the rails as far as equity when did you feel that
1: right from the start there was trouble from the start what we saw was that in order to do this we needed to find a global economic response to it how do we finance a campaign like that we would never done anything like that ever ever in the long history of humankind And we watched as the WHO and partner organizations attempted to find that kind of global buy-in from governments around the world, and they weren't finding it. So the, the idea that nationalism, that we were going to take all of our monies devoted to fighting the pandemic and spend them within our borders, the idea that that was going to dominate threatened right from the very beginning. Mm. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. I mean, we saw companies pricing their vaccines at these phenomenal profit levels. We saw profits surge in major pharmaceutical companies. We saw a hoarding by Western governments because Mm. they weren't sure if they would, we're going to get a second dose or would we need a third dose, a booster, a fourth dose. So really borders built incredible barriers to the exportation of the vaccines. And it meant that large parts of the world throughout that first year had access to
0: none Mm. and tell us about the actual making of the documentary because you did not only film in the us you went to many countries like south africa india Mm -hmm. switzerland i think portugal as well and there's probably there's probably more like across five continents in the filming of this Mm -hmm. documentary was that you doing that personally was it were you with a crew or like how did that happen and were you afraid cuz there's this virus going going on you probably traveled more than any other person on the planet during that time well
1: actually no i didn't you know we had a commitment that we made to ourselves that in chronicling this we would do nothing that would make anything any worse mm. so we wanted to make sure we stayed out of the way of science so that it functioned without us getting you know stumbling blocks etc but also, we didn't want to get on an airplane and move our virus here to another country. Yeah. And we actually adopted a policy of not even traveling from city to city. Oh, so wow. We had to devise ways that would allow me to direct the film without leaving my lockdown. That took some time. We, at first, we did an extensive R&D around development of robotic cameras. And that really failed us. Mm-hmm. And kind of spectacularly. Although it was fun. You know, I was trying them here in, in my home apartment and the dog went crazy. Dogs <laughs> hate robots. <laughs> so here's what we did. We hired hyper local crews. Mm. So if we were shooting in Philadelphia, for example, we would hire only in Philadelphia. Okay. And then we would have a very tiny footprint and then abide by whatever protocols were put in place in the laboratories where we were shooting, mm-hmm. etc. About testing, about PPE about distancing, about, you know, we actually would map out the room size and ventilation Mm.
0: to determine,
1: could we put a sound person in the room? And we did that globally as well. Sometimes shooting in multiple continents on a single day. And it wasn't until after the vaccines came out and and I had my two shots of Moderna that I got in an airplane and went to India. So that was the first Mm. place where I was, on the ground with my crew filming and we got to india you know hours before the delta crisis Ooh. struck there and it was awful
0: yeah it feels so intimate the storytelling of of the documentary that's why i'm like i'm surprised there's so many different crews because it doesn't feel that way watching it it just feels like i'm like looking over someone's shoulder and that's what like surprised me the most it the stories were so intimate they, you know, there's
1: so many people did so many extraordinary things during the pandemic. And I think of, for example, the million people who signed up for as volunteers in the trials for Phase 3. And the the crews that we were hiring really reached for, you know, an artistry to match the challenge of the times. and And we had intimate access to a lot of people in a lot of places. You see, right, the very first scene. We're in the basement with Dr. Peter Marks, who is the person in charge at the FDA of all vaccine research and approvals and regulations. And he invited us in. He knew that this was historic. He was in exile from his own office, working out of his basement laundry room next to a huge teddy bear. And he really helped us kind of establish that language of being right inside these, these rooms, behind the curtains, seeing things that ordinarily people don't ever see.
0: Yeah. I love that behind the scenes look and I love the science journalist John Cohen who's yeah. who's a surfer which is great cuz I'm a surfer and I love how he got that scene of him surfing and I guess That was
1: his condition. He said I'll be in the movie but you got to get me
0: surfing. <laughs> Every surfer would do that. Yeah, that would be me too. I'd be like yeah, you got to get a surfing shot. And and then he came out of the he came out of the ocean and he
1: said the waves were terrible. We have to do it again. <laughs> That's where he exercised
0: his control in the <laughs> He was great. So he conducted a lot of these interviews there over Zoom, and, but he actually goes to, I guess, Switzerland to interview the WHO president. And how did you decide on John Cohen as being that person who would do a lot of these interviews? And he's funny. He was just hilarious, putting some people on the spot. I've known John for a long time from being on the HIV
1: beat together. And I, I know that that there's no journalist who knows the vaccine world better than John. Mm. So as I was still in my early paranoid fixation phase of watching the vaccine development, I reached out to him regularly for his counsel and for him to calm me down some and for his faith that he had that this was all going to work out and then i recognized that the role of the journalist was really kind of key in this work that what he was doing was really representing the rest of us in relationship to science and the the way science was developing he was holding science to account holding governments to account and doing so from his perch at science magazine one of the leading periodicals covering basic science. And so I, you know, very gently suggested that I move him in front of the camera. And he very energetically accepted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On the condition that there'd be a surfing scene. As long
1: as there's a surfing scene. <laughs> and he wanted his mother in the film, too. And we just didn't That get was her.
0: so cute. But <laughs> oh,
1: we did get her in. She is in yeah. the film. He she got her vaccinated. Her yeah, yeah, that was his other condition. Get mom in.
0: Journalism was so important in the pandemic to get the right type of information. You know, even for someone who's like me, like a researcher and a physician, that I relied on good journalism to give me updates Mm -hmm. of like where the virus was spreading, of the new vaccines, the reporting of them, the efficacy. It was so important. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know. What inspires you to do these type of films? Because this is not your only film on a global disease. You did a film on HIV as well. And are you just like a science nerd or like, how does that happen? Like, why, why report on these issues? You know, I kind of taught myself science and taught myself journalism
1: at once in the early eighties as a gay man. I moved to New York in June of 1981, and it was July of 1981 that we saw the first reports in the New York Times about mm-hmm. this new gay cancer, it was called mm-hmm. at the time, affecting 41 known cases. And it really, that the arrival of that pandemic in my youth gave me an assignment. You know, I had to do mm-hmm. something. I think anybody in my community felt obliged to find a way to to contribute. And I knew I was not going to be good at the you know, at, at sitting at bedsides in hospitals with people that I was kind of innately nosy. But also, as I was describing about March of, of 2020, I kept pushing for answers. I wanted to know who was doing what work and where those answers would come from. And I began writing that up and reporting that. And that gave me kind of the beginnings of a career in science and health journalism mm-hmm. that, that has animated my print career for 30 years or more and then when i turned to documentary filmmaking 10 years ago with how to survive a plague i went back to that period which really had been the period of my youth to try and see what the benefit of time would allow us to know and think about the significance of that period Mm. how, how should history record that period i certainly spent a lot of time working with activists back then who were the people who really we're getting some answers and i Mm -hmm. i thought if i was going to know who's asking the questions i should stay close to the activists and they became a kind of a feeder system for me in my journalism Mm. that's where i met john cohen back way back then and so i just kept that reporting going now Mm. in filmmaking and in a lot of my other journalism i also moved into the the area of how other sorts of activism have impacted history
0: Mm. Uh,
1: certainly in the aids story in the history of the medications that made HIV potentially survivable infection. That's a story of activism. 15 Mm. years of activism between Mm. that first report in early 1981 and 1996, 15 years before any effective medication was discovered and rolled out. And that's, those are horrible years. And literally that journey would not have been possible without the intercession of activists mm-hmm. people mostly with hiv themselves desperate for survival and and the way that they penetrated the halls of science the way that they revolutionized the way science is conducted the way a lot of the way medicine is practiced certainly the way the fda works in regulating and rolling out medications all of that what we've inherited today is the product of that of that activism mm-hmm.
0: from that. yeah there's so many parallels with this pandemic and that pandemic and uh, you know working in a hospital during this time i i'm old enough to have remembered the, the hiv pandemic and was a medical student in the in the later years and i was thinking of a lot of that of these kind of like parallels that that were were happening and and I guess the activism that needed to happen during this pandemic, especially during the rollout. And I'm just curious to know when you were filming and seeing some of the, the failures of the rollout, what was going on in your mind? Were you were you raging like me or were you, you know, like kind of like your observations of, of what was happening on a, on a global scale? It's interesting because I, I had become so close in that first year
1: with the you know, pharmaceutical company folks who allowed me to come and record things that they had never allowed anybody else to come and record. It was such crazy deep access. I was yeah. like, floored. I was like, how did they get in there? And then to watch them kind of lose their responsiveness to humanity was both heartbreaking and, and infuriating. And I knew that that had to be part of the story that you you can have what Dr. Tedros at the world health organization calls the summit of scientific achievement be matched with such terrible behavior Yeah. that it really, I mean, in that year, that first year we had estimated with help of with academics and other researchers that an additional million lives would have been saved. Mm -hmm. If those frontline workers had been vaccinated in healthcare environments in countries around the world. And that wasn't a surprise, you know, public health told us that's what, what was going to happen and decisions were made that allowed that to happen. And that will be, and should be the lasting you know, message of this pandemic that we, we failed pretty spectacularly.
0: I'm going to play devil's advocate here and just say there's 4 billion people immunized in 2021 more than half the world's population i mean that's such a feat in getting the vaccines developed in 11 months can't the leaders just pat themselves on the back and say hey that was pretty good well but
1: where are those people i mean they are very concentrated in the us and europe mm. and those people that's half the population That included, and in those places, it was much more than half the population that included not only the frontline workers, but, you know, children, you know, by the end of 2021, we were vaccinating teenagers who had very little risk of serious disease, severe disease, and death. So that was a a matter of just giving us a sense of comfort, a luxury when the rest of the world was dying.
0: I remember feeling guilty about that, actually, because I have teenagers and I'm thinking, they're getting vaccinated, and there's so many people on this planet that have not gotten one vaccine. And they, my kids are going to be fine if they get COVID. And you know,
1: something you can't take on personally in some way, right? Because so when, yeah. when they told us it was time for the booster, I decided not to take it. Hmm. And then I realized that that they're not going to take my little needle and ship it over to South Africa. Yeah, you know, there's, there's no way an individual can make an impact in this big monstrous economic and political. And that it really, it takes the empowering of our public health agencies to supersede the desires of perhaps of our elected officials when it comes to something as severe as a global health emergency.
0: Mm. One of my favorite narratives was Reverend Paul Abernathy in Pittsburgh. Tell us about him and how did you find him and why did you choose to tell his story? Of the pandemic.
1: Father Paul has a small Orthodox Catholic church, a very small religious following, but he also operates something called the Neighborhood Resilience Project, which is based in Pittsburgh, as you said, serving underserved and isolated communities there on uh, all questions about health including freedom from gun violence, as well as access to medicine and access to the pathways to healthcare. Um, And we found him first on a local news report and he talked so powerfully about what he saw as the opportunities that COVID presented. An opportunity that he saw was, had the potential to allow us to rebuild around equity rebuild around the idea that healthcare is a human right and that it has to reach everybody because the virus is going to exploit those pockets of the communities that we've kept exiled from the healthcare system. And he was so right about that. It really dovetailed with my recollection about the HIV pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. When HIV hit in the early 80s, the queer community didn't have any purchase on you know civic life mm-hmm. in any way. We didn't have any rights. We didn't have, for the most part, across the U.S. and certainly across the rest of the world, we could be fired just for having been discovered for who we were. We were barred from certain occupations. And I remember going to a conference of the early International Lesbian and Gay Association, which is an NGO with UN affiliation. And somebody said, you know, we could use this. You know we could use this because that nobody likes to talk about our rights, but we could get them to talk about our health. Mm-hmm. And, and that will give us a way to open up doors mm-hmm. and talk about the bigger questions. And I heard that in Father Paul's addresses to his people. I heard him saying, like, look, once we get a response and system in place for this, then we're going to go back and have bigger conversations that are going to be available to us as a result of this. So he was just so remarkable as an orator, remarkable as a, a person who could see the future and so positive mm. in his attitude that that we went to Pittsburgh and we stayed with him for, you know,
0: 18 months. Whoa.
1: As he was doing his work. It was great.
0: Um, we were talking before we started recording, and I was saying this film i feel should be watched in every medical school nursing school public health school that it is so accurate so powerful you can learn so much about public health the healthcare system the pharmaceutical industry and and i'm just what do you think about the next pandemic that will happen if it happens and may happen what are the challenges do you think we're in a better position we're in a position to get through and survive the next pandemic? What are your thoughts on that as you've taken just a deep dive over the past couple of years following this pandemic?
1: Well, I you know, I certainly believe in the in the US that we we have grown a new perception around responsibilities to brown and black populations in the country around healthcare questions. Certainly the BIPOC community took the hardest hit. In the Mm -hmm. u.s from the pandemic which exposed the fact that we had so many underlying diseases that were not being treated in marginalized communities and really made it undeniable and visible what people had been just talking about before yeah and that combined with the i thought you know brilliant power of political eruption around the black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. gave us momentum in that conversation i'm not sure that we're anywhere near where we need to be yet. But so I'm hopeful about that. What I'm not particularly hopeful about is that political will that would be necessary to make sure the next time we do do the right thing for equitable distribution of vaccines. You know, the lack of equity, as I said before, resulted in a million more deaths than needed in that first year of availability. But it also gave rise to the Mm variants. You know, that's why we got Delta which burned through India, which had not been vaccinated, while the rest of the Western world had been vaccinated. That's how we got Omicron. The variants are the product of infections within unvaccinated communities, especially communities who already have suppressed immune systems for one reason or another. And those things then circle the world and challenge the, the barriers we think we've created for ourselves with these vaccines. So unless we can find a way to learn from that lesson and, you know, and put the public health authorities in charge of these things for the pandemic, it'll be the same.
0: Hmm. Since you had such a global perspective on this in your perspective, what countries did a great job at a public health response to the pandemic? Certainly not the U.S. <laughs> so um. yeah,
1: the the U.S. And I have to admit that I didn't spend much time studying those kind of northern European approaches, the mm-hmm. just let it burn approach, the you know the the various kind of theories that were put into practice. So I, I can't tell you what the end results of those had been. I you know the the Chinese experiment was severe; it still is. Yeah, they're still locking down entire cities with their zero covid policy and you know it has kept their numbers down certainly their vaccines have not been that great but what i was inspired by were those middle income countries like south africa Mm. where thanks so hard word to use but thanks in large part to the hiv aids pandemic Mm. they have built really strong scientific institutions that put them in a really strong position to both be able to deliver you know, public health messages that are effective and useful to people. But also they were doing more studies of the virus and more identification of variants than Mm -hmm. just about any country in the world. And what they were asking for from the very beginning was a tech transfer from the the pharmaceutical companies to the laboratories that they have already standing there, where they're Mm -hmm. manufacturing drugs. They were not yet manufacturing any vaccines, but they had the capacity to do it. They had the infrastructure to do it. And and even there, this simple matter, or what seems like it could be a simple matter of transferring the know-how for how to make the vaccines was just ignored. Hmm.
0: It was almost like if their public health system had this a previous immune exposure for to the HIV pandemic. And so they mm-hmm. were almost sensitized to this one and they were better prepared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: and what they had done with the rollout of those medications for HIV since 96, which is itself a kind of a heartbreaking story, how many years it took for the good news in 96 to actually reach sub-Saharan Africa, which was the very belly of the pandemic. They built access to healthcare throughout the country. Mm -hmm. they, They were able to reach people in the most remote parts of South Africa mm. with life-saving medication and the healthcare that goes along with that. It's not just enough to get people pills, but yeah. to monitor their their response to the pills, to see if they need to change the pills they're taking and to change up their regimens. And all of that had been put in place. And so they mm. they were ready and with a strong relationship between patient and doctor already.
0: Mm. I have so many questions, but we're running out of time. I, I know that my limited knowledge of how documentaries are made that you have way more film than minutes to tell the story and and a lot of the storytelling comes in the editing room how do you choose which stories to tell which not to tell and are there certain narratives that you wanted to explore more or or share but just like ran out of time you couldn't fit it in to the Mm -hmm. final
1: well unlike my hiv film how to survive a plague well, which, I, as I said, had the benefit of 15 years or more of, of time between mm-hmm. 96 and when I started to work on the film. This film was made in real time in which we were trying to find that long view. So we were filming everywhere. We filmed as though it was a 20-part series. Stories, some of which didn't develop into anything, some uh, you know, vaccine approaches that history will not recall. Mm. So we would abandon those from time to time because what we were looking for is how to put this in some historical context. Mm. And so that was our driving mission, I think in our, in our edit. And yet there were some stories that was just, you know, they say when that edit room floor is where you kill your babies. And we had some babies on that floor There was one really funky initiative that was developing a DIY approach to to vaccines, and they were
0: oh, I think I remember reading about that.
1: They were pretty amazing. They allowed us to come in and watch them as they, you know, tinkered with their approach and then vaccinated one another left and right. They were just they actually
0: (laughs) did it. Yeah, (laughs) they were actually vaccinating one another.
1: It it was great, and (laughs) there was no way to tell really. whether or not it was making any difference. and um, That's
0: a whole separate documentary right know,
1: I, <laughs> I know, because you know, we wanted to do some of that stuff on the margins. There was also an initiative called One Day Sooner, which was founded by a group of college kids mostly who thought if they could do something that would get the vaccines through the FDA approval process, one day sooner, it would save lives. Mm -hmm. and the approach that they settled on was a really interesting one they said instead of running classic phase three trials which are very large-scale trials tens of thousands of people in which you give the vaccine to tens of thousands and send them out into the world and and just imagine that some of them will come in contact with the coronavirus and then as soon as you get enough signals as soon as enough people test positive, then you can open up the trial and find out if all of those people are on the placebo side or not. Mm -hmm. And the big pharmaceutical companies were chasing surges around the globe because places where the prevention message was being adhered to, where people were wearing masks and taking care of themselves, they were able to suppress transmission numbers so low that it would take years and years to get enough signal in your phase three trial, these kids said. Give us the vaccine, then give us the coronavirus and see what happens. They didn't invent this. It's called a human challenge trial. Wow! It's been used before, never in a disease with fatalities associated with it and never without a rescue drug. So wow. let's say they did get come down with COVID. There was nothing at that time you could give them that would treat that infection. And they said, we don't care. You know, we are throwing ourselves and our bodies into this for the greater public good, and following them was really instructive about the motivation to think of other people. They recruited around the globe, they had people through Africa, wow. signed, tens of thousands signed up to do this study, and they began real serious conversations with agencies and universities and big pharmaceutical companies who were willing to consider this. But the disease raged strongly enough through mostly Latin America. Mm. We were able to get the signals necessary to open up those trunks. Latin America and the U.S., by the Mm -hmm. way, as you pointed out, like there was never really suppression in the U.S. That within 11 months, the data was there. So their work wasn't needed, but they still, for me, are heroes. And I I would have had them in the film in some way to celebrate their work.
0: So so many great stories. I I could talk to you forever. I, I know you're super busy. I should let you go. But I appreciate your storytelling, your activism everyone should go watch this film it's on it's streaming on hbo tell people about it if you're an educator i think have your students watch it, it is amazing i you know i smiled i got angry <laughs> i got choked up it was some parts were hard for me to watch to relive but it was just extraordinary storytelling so thank you for creating this Mm, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for this conversation, which was really fun. You can find David France both on Instagram and Twitter. His handle is B-Y-D-A-V-I-D-F-R-A-N-C-E. And reach out to me on Twitter at Bonku, on Instagram at D R B O N K U. Design Lab is produced every week by Rob Lapisi. Editing is by Fernando Quieros. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.